This morning, I'm continuing my summer sermon series, The Power of One Life. I'm uh, looking every week at a minor biblical character, someone I can preach on in one Sunday. We've looked at people like Ananias, Gomer, uh, the woman who had lived a sinful life in John, uh, Asaph, and then last week, Brian looked at the unnamed slave woman in 2 Kings. This morning, we're going to be looking at John the Baptist. He is, of all the minor biblical characters, probably the most major of all the minor ones, right? The most well-known Every single gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John begins talking about John the Baptist before Jesus shows up on the scene. He plays a pretty critical role in salvation history. Um, and so we're going to read this morning from the gospel of John. And John, who read, wrote the gospel of John, is not the same John as John the Baptist, just a common name back then as it was this day. So uh, John was one of the disciples of Jesus who wrote the gospel of John, most likely. So we're going to read from John chapter 1, verse 6 to 37, and what that has to say about John the Baptist, and then look at what the relevance is to our lives today. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. This hymn, by the way, is Jesus, in case you're trying to follow along with the he's and the hymns. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but he confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify 
that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, we ask that you would please open our ears to hear and open our hearts to understand what this passage means, how to apply this to our lives, Lord. We love you. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So before Jesus shows up on the scene, we have this man, John the Baptist. He comes baptizing people to prepare them for the coming of Jesus, it says, to cleanse them from their sins. And although the life and ministry of John is certainly very unique, I want to look this morning at three ways that I think that this is uh, relevant to our lives today. Three important, very countercultural implications for our lives today. So I hope you're ready, because here we go. The first is this. You are not the center of the universe. God is. Let me say that again, in case you didn't believe me the first time. You are not the center of the universe. God is. Now, many of you are familiar with Galileo, the story of how people came to realize that the sun is the center of our solar system and not the earth. That paradigm shift is nothing compared to the realization that happens when you understand that you are not the center of the universe, that the world does not revolve around you, that God is the center of the universe, that God is the one around which this world revolves. I remember when I first came to that realization, I believe I was about 21 years old. I was at a Promise Keepers rally. If anyone remembers Promise Keepers, it was a gathering of men all across the country in stadiums to worship God, to learn about him. And I remember going to one in Washington, D.C. and looking around and seeing 60,000 men worshiping God. And that was when it sunk into my heart that I was not the center of the universe. That these men were not gathered here for me. They were all here to worship God. The world did not revolve around me. Some of you hopefully already have come to that realization. Others of you, maybe not. But John is very clear about that when you read the gospel. Let's go back to some of those verses. It says, he did not fail to confess, but he confessed freely, I am not the Christ. And they ask him, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Who are you? And he says, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. It's not about me. I'm just the one preparing the way for the Lord. And then in John 3, a little bit later, some of John's disciples came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing, and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Christ. I was sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. He makes an analogy there. He says that Jesus is like the groom, and the people are like the bride. And John says, I am like the best man, the friend of the bridegroom. The best man is not supposed to be the center of attention. The spotlight belongs to the groom and the bride. And so when his disciples come to him and say, 
John, they're all leaving you to go follow this Jesus character. He says, praise God, because it's not about me. My job was to prepare the way for people to come to Jesus. And now that he's here, I must become less. He must become greater. The world does not revolve around me. I must not steal his spotlight. This is a very countercultural message today. Every message that seems to be out there is all about you, right? Have it your way because you're worth it. Look out for number one. What really matters is what you think, what you want, what you feel. You do you and don't let anyone else tell you what to do or what you can't do. All around us, the messages are that you are the center of the universe. You are the one that everyone else should bow to. But in a world where everyone thinks they're the center of the universe, you end up with chaos, don't you? When everyone thinks that everyone else should bow to them. What would it look like for you to truly believe this? That you are not the center of the universe. That the world does not revolve around you, but around God. That God does not exist to serve your needs, but you exist to serve God. That those sitting next to you and those in your life were not put there to serve you, but that you were put there to serve God and to love others. What would it look like to make John 3.30 your life verse, your mantra? He must become greater, I must become less. You're not the center of the universe. Second implication from the life of John the Baptist is this, that your purpose is to glorify Jesus and point people to him. Again, going back to what we read in John, it says, there was a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. That word shows up a lot, that word witness in John 1, that John's primary responsibility was as a witness to Jesus. And when you hear the word witness, most of us probably think of a courtroom where the job of a witness is to what? to testify, to give testimony to what they have seen, what they have experienced. That's the job of a witness. And John the Baptist, it says, he came as a witness to testify about Jesus, about who he is. So what's his witness? Let's go quickly through. What was his witness about who Jesus is? Five things I could point out quickly from this passage. That Jesus is the eternal son of God in human form. He testifies, John 1, 23, Jesus replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the one, I'm the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. The Lord is coming. John 1, 15, John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. In other words, he, he was before me. He's eternal. Even though he's come after me, he was before me. He's eternal. And John 1, 34, I have seen and testify, this is the son of God. He's come as a witness. He testifies first and foremost. This Jesus character who's come on the scene is the eternal Son of God in human form. Secondly, that he's the light of the world. John 1, 6 through 8. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light 
so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Again, that metaphor is saying that we live in darkness, so to speak. There's a lot of darkness in the world, a lot of men who are blind and fumbling around trying to figure out how to live and what to live for. And he came as a light. Jesus came as the light to reveal to us who God is, who we are, how to live. And John came to testify that this is the light of the world. Thirdly, he came to witness to this, that Jesus gives the Holy Spirit. John 1.33, I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. That this Jesus character will give the Holy Spirit of God to those who believe. Fourth, that Jesus makes a way for us to be adopted by God. Again, we're talking about what John came to testify to about Jesus. Who is this Jesus? John 1, 11 to 13. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And then lastly, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. That metaphor of the Lamb of God, in case you're unfamiliar with it, it harkens back to the Old Testament, the Passover Lamb, that the Lamb was slain, the blood was put on the doorpost, that the angel of death would pass over those houses, that they would be saved, they'd be set free. And Jesus says, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world who dies in the place of us so that we might be forgiven and go free. So John came, and his job was to testify as a witness to who Jesus is. This was the passage about that. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So he comes as a witness He comes as a witness that Jesus, through Jesus we have eternal life. Through Jesus our sins are forgiven. Through Jesus we're adopted as children of God. Through Jesus we receive the Holy Spirit because he is God in human form. Your job, your calling is the same. Your purpose is to glorify God, to point people to him. Acts 1.8. Remember, Jesus said this before he ascended to heaven. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. There's that word again. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Your job, he says, is to be witnesses, to testify to who I am and what I've done. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
I mean, when you ask the question, what are you here for? What is your purpose? Because if you look around the world right now, there is very much a meaning crisis in America of people who really just don't know what their purpose is, what their meaning in life is. Is it just to make money and try to find love before you die, or is there more to life than that? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, if you've ever heard of this, it says this, the man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, what are you here for? What is your purpose? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's not about you. You are not the center of the universe. This world does not exist to meet all your needs. God is not on the scene just to serve you and everyone else to serve you. We exist to glorify God, to enjoy him forever, to point people to him. John the Baptist came as a witness to Jesus. And we as well have been sent out by God as witnesses to testify to Jesus. It's not about you. It's about him. As the band Fleet Foxes put it in their song, Helplessness Blues. I was raised up believing I was somehow unique. Like a snowflake, distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you'd conceive. And now after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery, serving something beyond me. It's not about me. It's not about everything showing up to look at me and tell me how amazing I am. My purpose is to glorify him, to serve him, to know him. Again, the world is teaching you that you are the center of the universe But it's not about that. That's not where purpose is found. That's not where meaning is found. He must become greater. We must become less. As Jesus said in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? So challenging words, again, right? That if you just go out trying to find your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, take up your cross and follow me, you will find it. What good will it be if you just go after this world and gain it, but forfeit your soul in the process? This world does not revolve around you. You come as a witness. You are sent as a witness to Jesus What would this look like for you? To live your life to glorify him and not to live for your own glory and your own life and your own comfort. I mean, what would it look like? Look at John. You know, imagine you're John and Matthew 3, 4 tells us a little bit about him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Okay. You know, what if God's calling in your life was you are going to live in the desert by yourself. Maybe you'll have some followers, but you're going to be single. Your clothing's pretty much going to be camel's hair. You will have a leather belt, apparently, but you will be wearing camel's hair. Your food is going to be locusts and wild honey. And your job is going to be to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. And people are going to hate you and they're going to mistreat you, and they're going to say all kinds of things about you. This is your life. You know, Jesus said there's no one greater than John the Baptist. But again, I don't know what he's called you to in your life. I don't know what your circumstances are. 
what kind of suffering, what kind of sacrifices you feel like have come along with following Jesus. But I want to gently remind you this morning that you're not the center of the universe. That God does not exist to serve you. That everyone else didn't show up on the scene for your pleasure, for you. But your purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Your purpose is to point other people to him. And whatever it is he might call you to, he loves you. Trust him. This world does not revolve around you. That life to the full is found in glorifying him. The third implication I want to leave with you is this, from the life of John the Baptist, that you are to courageously call people to repentance and faith in Jesus. Part of being a witness Part of being a witness is testifying to how Jesus has changed your life. You know, if you know Jesus, then you have a story. And some of you can talk about the before. You know, before I knew Jesus, this is what my life was like. These are the circumstances of how I met Jesus or how he revealed himself to me. This is what my life has been like after. You know, a testimony to how Jesus has changed your life. And that's important. That's part of what it means to be a witness. But that's not all. Because that formula is used all over the world for all kinds of things, right? This was my life before yoga or P90X or weight loss surgery, you know, and this is what happened. This is how I found yoga, and this is my life after. I mean, it's not just about how X has changed my life. To be a witness, to testify to Jesus is also about what he has done, who he is. That we are sinners separated from a holy God, each one of us. That none of us on our own can save ourselves by our own good works. That God loved the world so much that he sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life that we couldn't live. To die a sacrificial death on the cross in our place. To rise again from the dead. To conquer sin and death. That everyone who believes in him, who turns, repents of their sinful self-centeredness and puts their faith in him will have eternal life. Part of that message is Repentance, turning from sin to Jesus. Matthew 3, 5 through 11 shows just how strongly John had to put this to some people. People went out to John from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, those are some of the religious leaders, coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. There's a line in there where he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance that tells you what repentance is. Repentance is more than just confession. It's more than just admitting something you've done wrong or that you don't measure up to God's standards. It's changing your behavior. Repentance is turning around. And so when he says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, he's saying, you need to not only repent, but show by your life, your changed life, that you are now following him. And not just living for yourself. 
This is the hard part, right? This is the hard part of testifying to Jesus. It's one thing if the message is just Jesus loves you just the way you are. Right? If that was the message, hey, God loves you just the way you are. You know, you are God's special, unique creation. You're his masterpiece, and God loves you. If that's all that the message was, not so bad, right? But if part of the message is repent and believe, if part of the message is you need to turn from sin, turn from self-centeredness, that you're not perfect just the way you are, that there are things about you that are evil, that are sinful, that are wrong, that are twisted. There are parts of you that need to be laid down, confessed, repented of. There are parts that need to be changed by God. That's the hard part. Right? I mean, if the message is just one of you are perfect just the way you are, right? That God loves you exactly the way you are and you don't need to change it all. That's an easy message, but that is not the gospel message. The gospel message that, is that all have sinned and fall short. That we're all part of the problem. That our sin has consequences for us and for others for all eternity, not just in this world. And that the call is to repent, to turn from sin and self-centeredness to faith in Jesus. That's why people like John the Baptist were not popular. It says he came in the spirit of Elijah. If you remember Elijah, Elijah prophesied against uh, a woman named Jezebel. She, Ahab, Ahab and Jezebel were the king and the queen and all the prophets of Baal. And Elijah stood against them uh, and dealt with a lot of grief, a lot of persecution as a result. And at the end of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, that it says that I'm going to send a prophet in the spirit of Elijah before Jesus comes, before the Messiah comes. And Jesus said he is the Elijah who was to come. That's who John is. It is not easy to be a witness and to testify because if you speak anything prophetic like that, if you call anyone to repentance, if you dare to say to anyone that there are ways that they need to repent and change and transform, be transformed, People are not going to like you. People prefer the message that they're perfect just the way they are, that they don't need to change anything, that God accepts them and loves them just the way they are. You know what happened to John the Baptist? Eventually, he opened his mouth against the king and told the king that taking his brother's wife as his own was wrong. And as a result, they beheaded him. And that was the end of John the Baptist. And you might not be beheaded for preaching a message that includes repentance, but metaphorically speaking, you might have your head cut off by people. It's not easy to testify to the true gospel that you need to turn from sin to faith in Jesus. You need to confess and repent and believe that Jesus died for your sins, that the reason he died is because you're a sinner, that someone needed to pay the penalty. But God will be with you. It says in Matthew 10, 32 to 33, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. In Matthew 5, 10 to 12, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. 
for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, Jesus is saying, yeah, it's going to be tough. If you go out there and you preach the gospel, you will probably endure some persecution and some opposition from people who don't like that message, who don't like that you're saying there is such a thing as a God, there is such a thing as a right and wrong, there is such a thing as sin, and that we're not all perfect the way we are. But he says, I'll be with you. You acknowledge me before man, I'll acknowledge you before God. If you are persecuted, rejoice and be glad. Great is your reward in heaven. So this morning, if you are in that camp that you just believed all along that, hey, I'm perfect just the way I am and God loves me just as I am and that's, that's what the message is, let me break it to you that that's not the entire gospel message, that the message is that we are sinners separated from a holy God. We're not perfect just the way we are. We're all part of the problem and we all are called to repent to turn from sin and self-centeredness to faith in Jesus. And that when we do that, he forgives us completely because he died on the cross for your sins. Repent and believe. Put your faith in Jesus. And John the Baptist, one of the reasons I'm preaching on him is that in two weeks we're going to be doing a baptisms on the 20th of August. Right now we have three people already who are, who are going to be baptized. And if you've never been baptized and you want to learn more or talk more to me about it, I'd encourage you to. Some of you were baptized or christened as children. You don't remember that because you were a baby. Our understanding as we read the Bible is that baptism is a way of identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus. That as you go down into the water, as you come up out of the water, you're identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus. That you've died to your sin and your old self. You've been raised to new life in Christ. Our understanding is that something that you choose for yourself when you're old enough to have made that choice, when you have given your life to Christ, when you trust in him and believe in him, that you publicly declare that by being baptized. And that's what baptism is. It's a public declaration of your faith in Jesus and identification with the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're going to be doing that in a couple weeks. And I want to encourage you, if you've never been baptized, if you want to talk further about it, to please talk to me. We're going to be doing that in two weeks. We will finish the service. We'll head over to Millwoods Park around the corner there and be baptized. So please, I want to encourage you to consider that. It's a way of publicly declaring your faith in Jesus. Baptism doesn't save anyone. We don't believe that baptism is the thing that saves. But it is a way of publicly declaring your faith in Jesus. So again, this is what we learn from the life of John the Baptist. First and foremost, you're not the center of the universe. The world does not revolve around you. There is a God who created you. And you find your purpose in living to glorify him, to point people to him. And that's going to look different for each of you. You all have been given your own set of special circumstances. You all have your own families and jobs and neighborhoods. But this is your purpose, to glorify him, to live for him, to point people to him. And part of that means courageously calling people to repent and believe in Jesus. Let me pray, and the worship team can come forward, and those who are going to be serving communion can come forward as well. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus, because we know on our own we could never save ourselves. We know our hearts, we know we are not perfect. We know that we fall short. And this morning, Lord, we do not just confess that, but we repent of it. 
that wherever there is sin in our lives, Lord, we pray that you would give us the courage and the strength to turn from those sins and to turn to follow you, to first and foremost trust that, Jesus, by your death, you paid the penalty that we deserved. You've taken all our sins, past, present, and future, on the cross. You've given us your righteousness, your perfect record, eternal life. And, Lord, now we pray that you would help us to live for you, to live to glorify you, to make you the center of our lives, to put you on the throne, and to point others to you, God, through our lives and through our words, to point people to you. Pray, God, that you would please use us, Lord. Give us the opportunity to have spiritual conversations with people, to let people know of who you are, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.